Welcome to the Journey Church Houston podcast. The Journey is a church plant in Houston, Texas, inviting people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Whether you are a skeptic, a spiritual seeker, or a committed follower of Jesus Christ, we pray this podcast engages your heart and your mind with the truth claims of Christianity, why it's believable, and how it makes sense of our lives in the world. And we hope you are inspired to take your next step in your spiritual journey. In this episode, Stephen begins a new series on relational evangelism. Evangelism is one of the core works of the church. So Stephen lays out what evangelism is, why we too often don't evangelize, and why we should evangelize, and why relational evangelism in particular is important in this age. We pray this lesson inspires and equips you to share the good news of Jesus where you live, work, learn, and play. Let's take a listen as Stephen kicks off our relational evangelism series. The year isn't the only thing that's new. Uh, it's such a blessing to be able to call uh, Heights Church uh, our, our home for, for, for the foreseeable future and during the early days of this church plant. And with a new season and a new building, we also get to start a new series, um, a new series of teaching as well. I'm extremely excited to embark on this new journey of relational evangelism with y'all. Uh, today we're just simply going to cover an introduction to the series that we're about to do over the next couple weeks, what it is, why we do it, and at the end uh, we'll go home with some homework. I know y'all love to hear that, especially if you've been out of school for a long time. Uh, that will help us start getting in the mindset of being relational evangelists in the Heights. For those who've been with us since the beginning, you've probably heard our mission a couple of times. It's to invite people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. And we do this through our values. Our values are biblical, thoughtful, relational, and missional. And as we'll start learning today, we also do it through our strategy that we call the journey. Our mission, our values, and our strategy are rooted in applying timeless biblical and historical principles of evangelism and discipleship to the unique challenges and opportunities of this cultural moment, of this disenchanted, postmodern, post-Christian age. Um, our strategy has six components. As we discussed in our lesson uh, that Mace led on being missional, everyone is on a spiritual journey. But our strategy helps us understand the different waypoints we can use to help us guide others as they move from a disenchanted life and being lost to themselves being a guide for others on their spiritual journey. These waypoints are that they would be known, that they would be curious, that they would believe, that they would belong, that they would become, that they would be sent. This series is going to focus on the first three waypoints of a person's spiritual journey, that of being known, being curious, and believing. Can you all say it after me? Be known, be curious, believe. Let's say it again. Be known, be curious, and believe. The journey along these three waypoints are what we refer to as relational evangelism. Now, before we begin, I want to acknowledge that for many, the word evangelism evokes a plethora of emotions and responses, some good, some confused, and some not so good. So I want to take some time and get a temperature check on how we in this room today are feeling when we hear the word evangelism. 
So let's start with a question. What words or phrases describe your thoughts and feelings about evangelism? And here's some, some options, some feeling words um, on, the, on the screen that if, can help you think through your feelings a little bit about it. Uh, but feel free to, to raise your hand and, sh and share with us or, or just shout it out. Um, sorry, the teacher in me was like, raise your hand. Um, yeah. Hope. Hope? Okay. Intimidating. Uncomfortable? Awkward? Yeah? Okay. Important but scary. Ill equipped? Yeah. Wherever that Yeah. Fun. Yeah. I think guilt, you know, mm. it's something that we know that we should be doing, but when we're teaching ourselves, we don't do it as much as I would like. Yeah. Yeah, Mason and I have gone sharing our faith a couple of times, and each time the word that keeps describing it is, 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 is nervous or anxious. It's like I've been um, in ministry for six, six years in vocational ministry and I was doing outreach as a student in college for four years before that and I still still get nervous every time I, I, I want to share my faith with people um, anyone else like to share their thoughts maybe an experience your experience of evangelism what you think of what you think of evangelism It was an awkward experience. Yeah. Time that was the least intimidating conversation I was experienced because I was speaking in broken French and then an interpreter was there and I was like, I'll never speak to you again probably. So I felt more free mm -hmm. to share because I was like, I'm not gonna rush into this, I'm just gonna share, you know. But it's that idea of like just people say no and you feel awkward and Yeah. And that brings up that even the difference between Sophia's experience and Jennifer's experience um, of one brings to mind door to door, knocking on people's door and asking them if you can have a conversation about Jesus. Um, I've had, you know, in crew and in, in college, I would go to 
to people in the student center and asked them if uh, if they wanted to have a conversation about spiritual things and and hopefully that would lead to a gospel conversation there at the table right in that moment. Um, winter conference, we would go door to door knocking on people's doors and asking them if they'd be willing to fill out a spiritual survey. And But I've also had conversations with like a fraternity brother in a hotel room or a uh, or on a plane to, to, to a training somewhere. I was talking to someone next to me in a plane um, or just with, with friends over, over coffee. Um, so many things come to mind when we think about evangelism. And as we see, there's a variety of experiences and thoughts about evangelism. So I think a good starting place for this series is to begin by defining our terms a little bit. So what exactly do we mean by evangelism? So the word evangelism comes from two Greek words. Uh, the first is a noun, so it's a thing, called uh, in Greek is euangelion, which means gospel. And even gospel in English, mean, in, in, in literally translated into English, means good news. And its verb form, euangelion, which literally means to preach good news. So if someone is evangelizing, they are preaching the gospel, or rather preaching the good news. The good news of what, you may ask? Simply put, the same gospel that's passed on to us by the apostles through the scriptures. As 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4 says that Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave so that we might be saved from sin and death and have eternal life. That is the good news that we preach. So evangelism is proclaiming that good news to the world. And by relational evangelism, we're saying that the primary context for sharing the gospel in our church, uh, at least to our church, is relationships. While there are certainly, certainly be many venues in our church in which the gospel is shared, our primary strategy is equipping you all, the members of our church plant, or the future members of our church plant, for the work of evangelism through your ordinary, everyday, conversational relationships with your friends, neighbors, coworkers, and family members. Conversations that happen over coffee, lunch, dinner, hangouts, and events like the ones that we've had already, like the Christmas party or the Super Bowl party or the block party. But why do we do evangelism? Let me turn the question to y'all. What do y'all think? Why should we do evangelism or evangelize as Christians? What do y'all think? Ramsey? We want people to be reconciled to God. That's good. What else? Because Jesus tells us to. Good Sunday school answer. Yeah. Yeah. Good news. Yeah. Yeah. You want to share with people what you've experienced in your life with Jesus. Yeah. Give them hope. It's good. All good answers. Before I share my perspective on this, I want to hear y'all's answer to a second question. Why don't we evangelize? Ramsey? I think probably the biggest reason 
know the school as well enough. Yeah. Have a plan as well enough to still come to school. So I think that goes for just about everything in life. Yeah. You know, public speaking, anything that we do publicly, if we feel like we know what we're doing, we feel more relaxed and more comfortable. If we feel like we don't really know or like we don't feel like we're prepared, then yeah we don't know what we do what we're doing so we don't want to do it because it could be embarrassing I don't struggle with that at all hmm <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Our life could come under scrutiny. Yeah. What else? What other reasons? Sometimes it's a cultural thing. Yeah. Well, let me share a few of my answers on why we don't uh, evangelize. Here's some of the top reasons I came up with. Some you all have already mentioned. One, our fears of relational risk. I think that's a big one. Two, our uncertainty about what to do, like Ramsey mentioned. Three, our lack of relational involvement with non-Christians. Some of us tend to, to, to find ourselves... Uh, exclusively surrounded by Christians. And then four, our, our busyness in life. We get very busy. Perhaps there's an additional fear, a feeling that if I am making friends with someone in hopes of sharing Jesus with them, or that I'm having intentional conversations with my friends that I already have with the hopes of sharing Jesus with them, that I'm turning them into a project, that I have ulterior motives to our relationships, that I'm using them. These are a few of the reasons we often don't want to do the work of evangelism. But I think despite some very strong and even understandable reasons that we don't share, there's a healthy intuition that we should share the gospel. But why is that? Why should we share the gospel even despite these concerns? Throughout our meetings as a mission team, we've been exploring this thing called the Christian story. In our core conviction series, we explored the most fundamental beliefs that are derived from that story. Central to understanding the Christian story is understanding who we are and what we were made for as human beings. We are image bearers. We were designed by God to glorify him and represent him in his world. And he gives us instructions on how to do that in the scriptures. Jesus summarizes how we do that in the Gospel according to Matthew. He says, when asked what the greatest commandment is, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, 
All of the various commands of the law, the instructions that guided Israel into being an image-bearing nation, if you were to summarize them into two commands, it would simply be this, love God and love your neighbor. That's it. Every other command in the Bible, including the texts that instruct us to share the gospel, are part and parcel of fulfilling the foundational command of loving God and loving our neighbor. It's from understanding that overarching theme of love in the Christian story that we understand the Great Commission, which we learned about in our lesson on our missional values. Can someone read Matthew 28, 18 through 20? It's on the screen, and I don't think it's in your handout. It's on the screen. Thank you. The Great Commission. When read in light of the Great Commandment, our motivation for the Great Commission becomes clear. We share the good news of Christ's death and resurrection with our friends, neighbors, co-workers, and family members because we love them. Now this flies in the face of so many stereotypes and caricatures of what evangelism is in our culture today. Here's what most people think the motivation of evangelism is, and, and this is just a, a, a educated guess based on my experience of doing evangelism a lot, and perhaps you've bought into some of these assumptions as well. Maybe someone might say, Christians evangelize because we want to build power and perhaps even make money. This means Christians need more people to join us at church and be like us. So we use our friends to sell more stuff, get more members, make more money, and build a better brand. Does that sound familiar? Maybe you've heard something along those lines. You'd be shocked at the number of college students today who are entering the workforce, who are Christians who think it is morally wrong to share the gospel with people, to evangelize. This view assumes that the Christian motivation for sharing the gospel starts with the love of ourselves and our organizations, and that my end goal in evangelizing isn't your benefit, it's my own. It's that, sinking, that same sinking feeling you get when an old friend messages you on Facebook and you think they're trying to rekindle a friendship that they used to have but they just want to sell you a new weight loss product. It hurts and you feel used. And oftentimes we feel the same can be true about evangelism. But let's flip that script. That is not what motivates us to do evangelism. The real motivation for sharing our faith is this. Christians love God and love our neighbor. A natural outflow of loving God will be an increasing desire to love those made in his image. There is no greater love that we can give to people than to invite them to believe in their Savior who loves them and gave himself for them. So we share the good news to love others. Notice how different this motivation for evangelism is. That difference is so key and so necessary to reaching this generation that we should be constantly reminding ourselves of it 
any time we set out to share the gospel with people. There's a reason when I invite friends to our outreaches, whether it's the block party, the, the Friendsgiving, the Christmas party, I don't tell them that our church is having a party. I tell them my friends from church are having a party. Why the slight difference? Because at the end of the day, my goal for these events is not that we would get more people to come to our church. Crazy, I know. That's simply the last of my priorities in having these events. My goal in having these events is that they would meet your beautiful faces and that through a relationship with you, they might discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. And I've already seen fruit in that. From friends who have come to these parties, and have thought y'all are pretty cool people, and have started to realize the thing that makes y'all pretty cool people is your shared love of Jesus. If they eventually come to our church, that's great. That's just not my first priority. Our love and compassion for our neighbor leads us to share the gospel, to do the work of evangelism. Why relational evangelism? The right motivation to do evangelism doesn't necessarily remove the very real obstacles that exist in our current cultural moment. While fear of relational risk, busyness, and uncertainty are valid obstacles to doing evangelism, Perhaps on a macro level, the most potent fear has to do with the rejection of the Christian story as a plausible or even desirable story in our culture. It isn't uncommon for Christians to be met with either apathy towards religion or a deep suspicion of or even antagonism towards Christianity as an oppressive force in the world. We live in a world increasingly dominated by the disenchanted secular story that is increasingly removed from the Christian story. And that is where the unique vision of our church's evangelism strategy comes into play, what we call relational evangelism. As I mentioned before, our mission, values, and strategy are rooted in applying timeless biblical and historical principles of evangelism and discipleship to the unique challenges and opportunities of this cultural moment, of this disenchanted, postmodern, post-Christian age. Notice that our mission is not fully accomplished by inviting people to believe in the gospel. That's important, and ultimately that's, that's the goal uh, in the big scheme of things, is for them to place their faith in Christ uh, and be reconciled to God. But the mission of the church starts at inviting people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. We believe that the Christian story is the true story of the whole world. It presents to us a powerful and compelling vision of the world, of reality, that corresponds to reality, that really is, that's true. But as we trace Western history, we begin to see a trend in the last few hundred years where our culture has largely exchanged the Christian story for a new story as its defining narrative, a story that I call the secular story. We see the consequences of abandoning the Christian story everywhere. Loneliness, meaninglessness, the placing of trust in things, people, and achievements, that cannot bring lasting fulfillment or joy. And through this cultural shift, we notice a few obstacles come up in evangelism that previous generations did not face as potently, at least not to the same extent. While three points alone can't really summarize the entirety of the effect that 
the secular story has had on our culture. I, I think there are three main effects that, the, that it's had on evangelism directly, uh, at least in America. Um, we are often met with, one, ignorance, two, apathy, and three, antagonism. First, I want to talk about ignorance. By ignorance, I don't mean stupid. Um, I mean a lack of knowledge specifically about the Christian story. In the past, we might have been able to assume that even if a friend was not a Christian themselves, they were at least knowledgeable about some of the basic plot points of the Christian story. They may not fully understand what it means, but they've had some common framework that we could work in. But all that has changed. A growing number of people in our culture were raised in secular homes by secular parents who might have had secular parents themselves. The only knowledge they have of Christianity is what they hear on social media. Hey, what's up? <laughs> it's okay, you can come in. Second is apathy. Even if you could logically prove the existence of God, the significance of God for our lives is lost on people. So our culture today has been trained to live life apart from the transcendent, where if you went back 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, you would not live a day of your life without thinking about things and spiritual forces that are going on outside of your life. God, according to our culture today, is no longer necessary. The disenchantment of our culture has led us to, as Paul, Gould, as Paul Gould says, live comfortably in an empty world, devoid of moral or aesthetic absolutes, a world without fixed meaning or clear purpose. This is because the goal of life is no longer out there, but so to speak, in here. And then third is antagonism. As the secular story takes greater root, religion is increasingly seen as a weapon used to oppress people, a weapon that must be rid of if we want to create a peaceful, tolerant, and inclusive world. Therefore, Christianity is not only seen as untrue, but perhaps a moral evil in our world that must be abolished. So how do these three things, uh, ignorance, apathy, and antagonism, affect evangelism? Well, Joshua Chatraw, in his book, Telling a Better Story, explains. He says, Until recently, most outreach strategies have focused on verbally sharing the gospel, getting unbelievers to attend an evangelistic event, being able to answer basic intellectual questions, yet still assuming that unbelievers understood and shared a common framework for considering religious claims. This approach worked well when we lived in a Christian, culturally Christian society the context of which most of our past outreach strategies were developed. Christianity was seen as a cultural good, something that helped society flourish and function well. If you haven't noticed, things have changed. Today, there is a growing social sentiment that discourages people from attending church events or even seriously considering the Christian message. So what do we do if people won't naturally want to come to church? so that our pastor can share the gospel with them. Do we give up on reaching people with the gospel? Of course not. He continues to say in his book, something's missing. There's a shallowness that gnaws away at the fleeting happiness that the secular narratives offer. The realities of life have a way of applying such pressure 
that at times even the Senate can't help but peer into the secular crevices beneath his feet. People can't help but feel the existential angst when the script they've assumed begins to break down. The good news is that there is something in the human heart, even amid the culture shifts and our disordered fallen condition, that longs for a better story. People are hardwired for God, and they're craving a better story than the one that they've been offered. In other words, with new challenges also come new opportunities. As the world comes to grips with this new story it's embraced, we have an unprecedented opportunity to share the gospel with a hurting generation. This is not an age to abandon the work of evangelism. Rather, the love we have for our neighbors compels us to enter into the confusion and invite them on a journey to discover a better story, the Christian story. So how do we reach people in a culture so detached from the Christian story? Well, obviously, we can't look in the last hundred years as times have changed, cultures changed. But humor me for a bit while I look even further back, say, to the first century, say, to an apostle named Paul. Y'all want to look at your, uh, your handout on the back. Uh, is a fairly large passage just because it's telling a story. Uh, it's Acts 17, verses 16 through 31. If y'all want to follow along while I read it out loud. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul here is doing what I think is similar to our relational evangelism with the people in Athens. He invests relational time and energy to be in their community, in the marketplace, to the point that they bring him to a place where he can start to debate those ideas with the, 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 the thinking types of their day. 
and he enters into their spiritual journey, learning what story exactly are they living by. And he starts to build bridges between the good longings in their heart and the Christian story. And he starts to expose how their own story fails to answer the good longings that they have by quoting the artists and poets of their day. There are three tools that Paul uses to accomplish this goal. He starts with the beginning of the Christian story. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. He starts with Genesis 1 and 2. He builds the common ground necessary for them to intellectually comprehend the gospel. And then he explains how the story better makes sense of reality than their previous stories. And he uses logic and reason. But second, Paul utilizes goodness. He affirms the intuition of the Athenians that they ought to seek something to worship, that they ought to worship the divine. But he pulls at this sense that something is missing. Something is, fail or is falling short in their worship. God must be bigger than they imagined him to be. And they know that that righteousness demands right worship. Third, Paul uses beauty. By quoting the poets of their day, Paul appeals to the heartstrings of the Greeks. He shows the cry of the poet's beautiful verses can only be found fulfilled in the God of creation. Truth, goodness, and beauty. Notice that each one of these tools corresponds to one of the obstacles that I mentioned earlier. Truth overcomes ignorance. Goodness overcomes antagonism. Beauty overcomes apathy. By utilizing truth, goodness, and beauty in the context of intentional relationships, Paul makes a compelling case for the gospel to a people who were previously living by a completely different story. So how does this look at the Journey Church? We want to invite people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. We picture the primary means of evangelism to happen in the context of relationships. Any and every event that we do is designed to be evangelistic in nature, that those events are those events are not an end to themselves necessarily, but they're a means to the end of helping foster relationships. Whether it's you hanging out with a friend from our, our church plant or bringing someone new who doesn't know Jesus and introducing them to others in our church plant, getting their contact info, inviting them to coffee, lunch, or dinner, or even in the future we'll have community groups that are going to be great places to invite your friends co-workers, neighbors, and family members. And it's not going to happen through a complex 10-step process. It's going to happen through having everyday conversations with them. The greatest tool in relational evangelism is your friendship. Now, we call this a journey. We call this a journey because it's going to take time. And it's going to take meaningful relationships for these conversations to happen. Uh, as Dr. David Geisler says, the missing element in our evangelism process today is simply that evangelism is a process. You and I may not be able in one conversation to share the entire gospel with our non-believing friends and then invite them to trust Christ, but we may be able to help them take a step closer to the cross with each encounter. In a similar vein, the journey is just that, a journey. Compelled by love for our friends, neighbors, coworkers, and family members, we're stepping into their spiritual journeys and guiding them to the cross of Jesus Christ, planting seed by seed, conversation by conversation, so their hearts would be softened by the goodness and beauty of the Christian story 
that they would begin to consider the truth claims for themselves. We've mapped out our strategy of the journey into various waypoints, like we said earlier. These waypoints are not steps, one to be followed after the other, although there is a, a logical sequence to them, but rather they're signs that someone is going in the right direction. First, we want our friends, neighbors, coworkers, and family members to move from being unknown to being known. We want to hear their personal story and understand the bigger story that they're living by. Second, we want them to go from being known to being curious. We want to expose the plot holes in their story and reveal the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story through our relationships with them and sharing our story with them. And third, we want to guide them from being curious to believing, that through a clear presentation of the truths of the gospel, they would place their faith and trust in Jesus. Be known, be curious, believe. These are on your handout. Uh, all right. Can you all repeat after me? Be known. Be curious. Believe. Right, let's say it again. Be known. Be curious. And believe. This is our strategy at the Journey Church Houston. We want to invite people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Uh, today, I'm going to give you some homework. Uh, what I want you to do is write a spiritual biography of a friend of yours from your top five. If you recall, during the lesson on our missional value, we challenged each other to come up with five people in our lives that we want to invite on a spiritual journey with us. Think about those five, or if you haven't come up with, the, with that list yet, start thinking through and coming up with the list of your top five. And then ask yourself and write down, what do you know about where they are on their spiritual journey? Maybe pick one or two people from your top five and then write a few sentences about it. Here's an example. I wrote down this, this uh, imaginary one for someone who doesn't exist. It says, Tyler seems to have a sensitive heart for others, but I wouldn't say he's moral or religious. He doesn't seem like he was brought up going to church or anything, but he doesn't strike me as a hardcore atheist, maybe just indifferent. He loves outdoors and nature. Maybe he sees God in those things. This is just a summary and trying to think through, do I know where my friends, who I want to know Jesus, are in their spiritual journey? And if you don't know, if you can't write those things down, maybe it's time to start thinking about asking them some questions about what are your thoughts about Jesus? Have you ever been to church before? Have you ever, like, what's your religious background? I go to church. That's a big part of my life. What, do you, what is your religious background like? If you don't think you could write a paragraph like this, start praying about how you can have deeper conversations with your top five. And next week, Mace is going to help us explore a little bit about how we can have those deeper conversations by teaching us how to ask good questions. So I want you to consider how you can invite your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, and your family members on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for the gift of the gospel, first and foremost. I want to thank you for the gift of, of being able to journey with these amazing people. We can invite people to discover the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of your story, Lord. That we can be reconciled to you through your son's death and resurrection. 
And God, I just pray that you would continue to work through this church plant, that people would come to know you, that we can love people the best way we can and invite them to a relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of our imperfections, in the midst of our feeling unqualified and feeling that we don't know what we're doing, God, that your spirit would still be at work in us, helping us learn, helping us grow. And Lord, I just pray that you would bring divine appointments to us, Lord, people that would are craving to know you, even if they don't know it yet. And I pray that you'd give us the courage to share with them the hope that can only be found in your son. But I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Journey Church Houston podcast. For more resources and to connect with us, including to learn how you can be a part of the journey, visit thejourneyhouston.org.